1: to value listeners. We have a guest this week that is truly exceptional. We have Dr. Omolara Thomas Uwe Madimo. She's a healthcare social entrepreneur, board certified pediatrician, community health equity consultant, career transition and business coach, public health researcher, and health justice advocate. She's currently the CEO and co-founder of Strong Children Wellness, a multi-award winning practice in New York City that provides integrated physical, mental, and social health care services for low-income communities of color. Back in 2019, Omalara lost her ability to walk. She was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, a chronic autoimmune condition. During her recovery, she became a staunch wellness advocate for women of color who in healthcare often experience disproportionately higher rates of chronic disease due to weathering the deterioration of one's health due to medical racism and toxic environmental stress in the workplace and in society. And in response, she founded Melanin and Medicine, a community health equity consulting and social entrepreneurship company that helps women of color thrive by building purposeful careers within healthcare enterprises. She also hosts a weekly podcast you should definitely check out. Called Funding Your Healthcare Vision, which helps visionary leaders of health centers and practices secure grants, contracts, and other funding to strengthen, scale, and sustain their vision, mission, and impact to support under resourced communities of color. Dan, this is just an amazing conversation with someone that's really doing the great work to make this world a better place through this creation of health justice.
0: Yeah, Eric, I couldn't agree more. It's so incredible to have such a visionary person to bring eye-opening opportunities to our audience. And I'm excited for for them to hear what she has to say. We cover topics like social entrepreneurialism, value-based care, healthy communities in a social enterprise. Eric, you mentioned it, the funding potential and the, the collaboration with CBO partnerships. We go in depth into screenings and Medicaid and and culturally competent care—such a such a cool conversation with an amazing leader.
1: Let's now hear from Dr. Omalara Thomas Uve medimo as she joins us this week in the Race to Value. Omalara, welcome to the Race to Value. It is so great to have you on the show this week.
2: Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here.
1: Well, I am too, and I'm just in absolute awe of your background as a healthcare social entrepreneur. Board certified pediatrician, community health consultant. You're a career transition and business coach, also. You're actively involved in public health research. And most importantly, uh, I think you're a health justice advocate. And that's something I really wanted to talk about with you today. You know, we're in this journey in value based care, we're working to improve health equity. And you've really been out there advocating for the integration of social enterprise principles into healthcare. And While we see many organizations in this movement to value-based care exploring innovative models to blend the provision of medical services with social impact initiatives, I mean things like SDOH and improving access to care for underserved populations and other things like that, I mean we're still seeing the vast majority of healthcare organizations that are only able to give lip service to the broader societal impact that healthcare organizations can have beyond traditional clinical care. And the potential for aligning financial sustainability with social purpose is something I know that you've made some great strides in. So, as we're just thinking about, as we start a conversation today, you know, obviously everyone listening to this interview just understands how flawed, you know, and systemically broken the current healthcare system is. But we have this primary aim to, in value-based care to address these broader social and environmental challenges. And and there's also this challenge of securing funding and having financial sustainability where a healthcare entity can be able to subsidize these interventions to address these social and environmental issues and be able to reinvest profits back into their social uh, mission. Omalara, can you begin our conversation today? I was just thinking maybe you could discuss the role that value-based care with this increased focus on health equity has had on you and, and your vision. And are you seeing that that there's an inflection point right now for social entrepreneurialism and healthcare? And how can we ultimately create the right incentives so that private profit creates public good?
2: Yeah, so I'm just really excited at how you started this conversation. You know, I think it, it would be really helpful for your listeners to just understand a little bit more about the model that we've put together and why value-based care has been a really important place that we want to make strides in, in terms of trying to improve how that model can really support not just health equity, but health justice, which we believe is different because it isn't just about providing more to certain others, but why do we have to provide more to certain groups? And we wanted to try and think about how we can break certain silos. So really quickly, I am CEO and co-founder of an organization called Strong Children Wellness. And in that organization, the reason that it was started was because of the collective frustration of taking care of uh, populations who were on Medicaid and very psychosocially complex and feeling within large health systems. I worked in an academic medical center as well as my co-founders that we weren't able to have the time and definitely have the resources available to be able to provide all of the different things they needed, which included, of course, unmet mental health needs and addressing unmet social health needs. And due to that collective frustration and the lack of funding, a lot of us, what we had done is identified grants and working with philanthropy to potentially be able to fill in the gap. Um, usually through a community partner. And ultimately what that looked like were these connections where we would have a organization, almost like this triangulation of a community organization, us, and then the patient, and trying to make sure that the patient was able to move through us for physical health care and that community organization for the other needs that our physical health spaces did not Um, sufficiently address housing, food, and the so forth. And ultimately we found that it was helpful, but it was flawed. And the reason it was flawed was because there was a huge amount of loss to follow up and difficulty in making those connections and closing that loop. Now, where does value-based care come in? The idea for us was as starting this entity was saying to ourselves, where, as you mentioned, SDOH has been a hot topic, and with that hot topic, we have clear evidence that eighty percent of health outcomes are defined and and really determined by the other these other organizations and the and the work that they're addressing, and only twenty percent of health actually comes from clinical care. And in our head, we said, "Well, what's the problem with just moving clinical care into those organizations?" And what we found in order to be able to fund something like that was almost this kind of private public partnership, even though it was like a for-profit nonprofit partnership. And the idea there was that we would have access to philanthropy dollars who were interested in the outcomes more so than the actual maybe amount of money that could be generated and ultimately seemed to have a more open, idea and I would say space for innovation. What we're finding right now, why value-based care is important is because with those contracted models, we almost have a PMPM or a capitated kind of payment model where we're able to say each month we can care for this many patients and we can bill, but those other services, the referrals and other things that we're providing, that is actually what's being funded by the philanthropy dollars each month. And that has been, I think, a precipice for us to be able to present, this is the integration model that is actually making impact to payers and saying, okay, this is how much it costs. And this is how much how much we've been able to save in terms of less ER visits and less hospitalizations for the clients that you, or the members that you have. And I think it's this really nice, what should I say, this really nice continuum where they see that and now they have the evidence to be able to go all in and say okay let's start with a contract and we have been in a space in pediatrics particularly where that has been very 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 difficult for many reasons that i'm sure you've talked about <laughs> in in past episodes.
0: Well, Laura, I love the vision you've just painted. What a novel concept and you know you've really articulated well that health it it's it's about communities not clinics. We can't just look at health in isolation in the doctor's office. Health happens where we live and work and play and pray. If you've got a healthy community, you've got the healthy individual. But the majority of healthcare organizations are not conducting this type of place-based intervention for improving health equity. They're not really addressing the underlying social determinants of health within their communities. And, And oftentimes, we rely on CBOs to perform interventions but uh, social entrepreneurs like you are just visionary in recognizing that tailored interventions need to be aimed at reducing disparities and addressing structural and environmental barriers and promoting equitable access to resources and creating supportive environments for health and well being. And, and you're a practicing physician, obviously a health equity advocate. And I'd love to hear more about how you've been able to build these socially responsive care models as pathways to health justice and when you think about you know the traditional healthcare um, professional uh, and the environment uh, the status quo that they've kind of grown up in uh, what can you share with our listeners about how to pursue that reverse integration to turn a traditional healthcare model into a social enterprise where primary care services are embedded into fam- in into family serving community based social service organizations rather than brick and mortar Primary care sites?
2: Yeah. So I also founded because of this desire to say to myself, we need more of us doing this. Uh, I founded Melanin Medicine, which is a consulting agency that does just that to try to inspire and support practice owners to really move into this model. Um, so the first thing I would say is, I know you're tired. <laughs> that's usually the first thing I say to those that are really working with under-resourced communities and trying to give the best care and understanding that there are super cost constraints that I could not imagine until I moved from academia into the community setting. And so the first thing that I usually say is, to start with the person, right? What is it that you are doing inside of your practice that you might be doing as a health system that is caring for the patient, of course, physical health, but outside of that, what have you noticed is actually moving the needle? So for me, for example, it was the referrals, it was really trying to figure out a way that we could learn more about their social problems, because a lot of times that was the interfering or the competing factor um, from them being able to maybe buy this prescription or go to this, um, this subspecialty appointment. And what we developed was saying that primary care at baseline, especially after the Affordable Care Act where there was this influx of those that were in lower middle class but not quite Medicaid eligible, um, making sure we had navigators, making sure we could expand the social referral navigation workforce, um, and one of the things that we utilized when we were first starting this in the health system was thinking about who are those that are really excited to be exposed to medical spaces, and it's it was students, and we, so we started with students and really training them around resources that they could use to really support our families when we wanted to give a prescription for food or for housing or. For, any of those kinds of things. And so building that was really important. However, how did we fund that? So the piece that I think is really important for people to understand is that a lot of times we did that in isolation of the fact that CBOs already have resources that are doing that. And so the thought process was a lot of these CBOs were Dealing with a lot of issues around how do we get access to care for our families. What I've found as a community um as a community provider is that working collaboratively and now working inside of these centers and kind of being a, you know, a one-stop shop, we are reaching families who never we thought we were taking care of psychosocially complex families until we, went into these CBOs and realized they they could they never reached us. um the ones that really needed this support. And so what I'm saying is that these are also really important for the plans to know that these patients are the ones that are probably going to cost them the most money because, they aren't accessing care in the way that those that actually get to us in the traditional health system. And so what I would say is that if if you as a provider or health system is really interested in justice and equity and getting to the most difficult to reach, then it really requires for us to step outside of those four walls. And in doing so, I think one of the really important things that is also important is for you to say to yourself, what types of organizations need me now? So for example, I've worked with mental health clinicians and we've created partnerships where they've worked with homeless shelters. And those homeless shelters have been able to get grant dollars or contract them in the interim while they secure grant dollars to be able to now bring mental health services into, um, into homeless shelters. And so my goal really is for us to be as creative as possible and to say who's experiencing difficulty in access to healthcare and to stop being so rigid and thinking about how can we provide, outsource our healthcare into these spaces or at least provide streamlined referral partnerships.
1: Well, Omalara, you've done incredible work building these interprofessional teams and really bringing scale to innovative healthcare delivery and achieving greater health equity for these marginalized youth and families. And I wanted to get more into the the funding aspect of how you've been able to accomplish this great feat. As I understand, you've been able to secure over two million in grant funding, and you've accomplished that within your own community healthcare network. You're also using expertise to help BIPOC women-led healthcare practices partner with community organizations to create health justice for historically excluded and under-resourced communities. And in doing so, you recognize that we not only need to create health justice-driven enterprises that are impactful, but we also have to fund them to be sustainable. And for many of our listeners, this may sound too good to be true. I mean, many are spending nights and weekends unsuccessfully trying to figure out on their own how to get their organization to stop losing money. They're worried that they don't have backup cash flow or funding to support the organization, especially if they lose Medicaid revenue. They're they're trying to increase revenue, but they don't have the profit margins to hire team members and, and, they're, and their workforce is burning out as it is. So, Omelara, I wanted to ask you just how can – healthcare organizations embark on this path towards sustainability as a social enterprise by connecting with potential partners or funders? And what would you say are the best practices for securing funding for mission-driven healthcare enterprises without loans?
2: Yeah, so I think the the first thing that I would say is, We need to think about all of the pieces, not just the clinical care, but all of the pieces that health systems have in their arsenal to be able to support human service organizations that are interested in supporting the whole person, right, and interested in making sure that healthcare is one of the things that is a part of the ways that they they support their clients. And so what I mean by that and why I position it like that is because we now know and a lot of waivers, Medicaid waivers that are happening have now uh, recognized that we have to pour more into human service organizations as a central leader in health, which I know healthcare organizations usually might scoff at that, but it's I think it's it's really important to recognize. So when I think about what actually is the is the necessary thing for a health organization to look at who's dealing with financial constraints and, and difficulty with solvency, the first thing is to think about what do you have in your arsenal that is going to be important for improving health outcomes. So that is not just clinical care. That's often with the women that I'm working with, I'm saying to them, saying to them, yes, we can provide this clinical care, but let's not limit. To that. That includes community health education. That can include consulting to support their teams around how do they integrate or create their own health-related service lines. It also could include training and, and of their staff or coaching of their staff around specific things that may not be direct health care in the medical, but maybe around counseling, around health issues, and training their staff around things that their staff are seeing. And so, ultimately, at first, it requires expansion of us to think about all of the different ways that and things that we can contribute into um, to the the most in need clients who a lot of times sit within these human service organizations and have real barriers. Now, the first thing that I usually say in terms of funding is identify who the ideal target population is that you want to serve well, but the math, as the kids say, the math is not mathing. So how do you do that? And so let's say it is that you want to serve homeless youth or it is that you want to serve undocumented immigrants. What we do is we actually identify who are the human service organizations that have the connections, the buy-in, the credibility, and already have been working deeply with that. And what we do is we help to facilitate the presentation of what a model could look like where we are able to provide our services. So it might look like having a contracted um, proposal where you have you actually have a practitioner who is embedded inside of that organization a couple of days a week to provide a medical home and really being able to the organization assesses unmet medical needs, they are able to set up time for that person to see them and they become kind of that primary care position but are able to do it without the geographic access barriers and uh, traditional barriers to care that a lot of those families um, experience. The way that is funded is that becomes a primary, that model can be a primary presentation to a past funder for that organization where they present to their funder, hey we i know you love us but we want to start also providing healthcare and that's been the simplest way first the second is that a lot of times organizations may in the interim decide hey we want to just contract you monthly and we help them build out proposals our healthcare systems, build out proposals of what it would cost. And I think that's really important for us to think about what the cost is, but also what's the MVP? What's the minimum viable product? Let's start slow and really small. And the reason why we do it that way is that our goal is actually to be a pilot that we can make sure that we're at We're identifying what are the outcomes that we achieved and presenting those initially, like putting those out initially so that then we can present what we've done and be in conversation with actual payers who can truly fund this on a capitated payment. So I kind of think of us, what we're doing as this interim I would say, relationship where we are are trying to make the case so that larger entities that are truly responsible, whether it be the government or insurance payers, can now see this works. And now we have the evidence, we've had it funded through either philanthropy or nonprofits themselves, and now we can present it. And one of the examples of that is even in the past month, we actually have been doing this work for about three years or so. And finally, one of the largest Medicaid payers in um, New York came to us and said, we see what you're doing. We already like have seen how amazing the outcomes are in terms of engagement. And we now have decided to actually have a PMPM for navigation services for child-serving organizations. And you know that's music to our ears. But if we waited for that, <laughs> that probably would never have happened. But we had to use what the fund, the funds that were available to us. I, I'd, I'd stop there and then I can talk through kind of what the different phases are of how we how we move people from I've never connected with a CBO or done any of this to now we have a full-fledged partnership.
0: Well, Omalara, I'd love to learn more about partnering with nonprofit organizations to drive innovation. So maybe, you know, starting yeah. at the, the CBO part, healthcare organizations oftentimes don't have a budget to test population health interventions, but partnering with the CBO could really open up that pathway. And through these partnerships, the healthcare organization can tap into expertise of the nonprofit community, collaborate on innovative solutions, engage with the communities, access additional resources and and even leverage policy influence. And these partnerships, as I understand, can enable healthcare innovation to be more responsive, inclusive, and effective in in addressing complex health challenges and promoting positive social impact. uh, Nonprofits are instrumental in providing guidance on best practices, evidence-based interventions, and emerging trends. And they can even fuel a culture of continuous learning and improvement within healthcare organizations. So as we're thinking about the, the CBO partnership, Can you walk us through your experience in collaborating with nonprofits to co-create innovative solutions that address complex healthcare challenges? And, And what is the role of the partnership between the healthcare organization and CBO to develop innovative models of care, technologies, programs, or policies that have the potential to transform healthcare delivery and improve health equity outcomes?
2: Yeah, I would love to do that. So the first phase that we usually do is we do the interrogation phase. Um and the interrogation phase is really looking at trying to kind of poke holes in what exists right now as an entity as a healthcare system ourselves. And I like to say that we're looking at what are our virtues, like what are our strengths, what are our values? So what are the things that we know we we want to do, which includes the priorities and the boundaries? Like what is it that we definitely can't do? So we're clear and also looking at our vulnerabilities. What are the threats that we have? What are the places where we don't have the staffing or we don't have the funding? Um, and what that does is it allows for us to go into this really clear. Um, A lot of times when we're engaging with other organizations, it's really exciting to say, yeah, we can do this and we can do that. And there's a lot of stock put into that. And so I think it's really important for organizations to think about their business model, what has been the services that they've provided, what has been the client journey, the impact and the feedback so that they're not bringing... (laughs) things that are flawed into now larger or organizations or other populations. The other thing is operations. Where are the gaps? Cause a lot of times the focus has been on the service delivery, but not on the back end. Where, is, where are you finding there's difficulties? Some of uh, I think one big thing has been the cultural responsiveness of the staffing. So maybe the CBO might actually have better ways or better um, tools in terms of staffing from the community and making sure that whoever is coming is is actually looking like the community that they serve. And so thinking about where are places that you faltered in terms of your ops, and then also thinking about where, what types of populations have you not really been able to access or penetrate um, so that then we're clear about what type of organization we want to work with because it will allow us to strategically get in front Get our services to those populations who need them, but have not been successful. That we haven't been successful with. I also talk about, you know, other things to think about in the interrogation phase are um, the sustainability, like what have been the, the the burn rate and the profit profit margins that either have been reached or have not been reached. What does um, space look like? Is space a necess- necessity? Uh, for for scale or is virtual an option? And then also the software and efficiency. I love talking about that because with clunky health systems, that sometimes is something that where there's a little bit of... Um, Reluctance to to put it mildly. Once you move from the interrogation phase, and we're now like, oh, okay, these are all of the things. It can be pretty a Debbie Downer moment. Uh, we move to the innovation phase, and the innovation phase is really now when you're thinking outside the box. Like I said, of what is it that we could provide? What is it that the or the target end user? needs um, from our perspective. And then we're going to, of course, at later junctions and later phases, basically find out if that is true on the other end. But we want to make sure we have frameworks that are verifiable so that we are using what either the expertise or experience that we've collected as an organization, make sure that is it verifiable? Is there a framework to what we want to offer? I usually say, think about one service line or one offer in the beginning, one kind of, if it's clinical outsourced clinical delivery, fine. If it's a consulting, that's fine. Um, If it's really training and providing your practitioners to be able to train to make sure that there's decentralized access to certain information or education through the nonprofit staff, fine. But thinking clear about one specific area where you feel like you can make a difference and make more impact, but you just have not had the bandwidth or opportunity to. We want to make sure it's valid. So we want to make sure that we do have some kind of information that is evidence-based that shows that what we're bringing actually does help. Um, make sure it's visionary. So are you thinking big picture, the population, community, how can it affect that the larger scale, not just one patient, but nonprofits are usually, and their funders are usually looking for impact. So thinking about how does this impact the community at large, and is it viable, what you're proposing, um, what kind of systems, and being very upfront with yourself about what kind of systems or space that you need to really be able to move this forward, or support team, of course. Then we move into the identification phase, and that is our sourcing of who are the right partners potentially. And that can happen in multiple ways. Um, I like to say sometimes I'm a public health professional as well. I'd probably lean more into my public health than my pediatrician hat oftentimes. And uh, that's really about identifying, doing a community needs assessment, thinking about who is doing the good work. How we found our first partner was we realized who are we referring to all the time <laughs> and why. Haven't we just sit, sat down and talked to them and buy, and and uh, had a conversation? And so that might be the way, oftentimes. But you do a needs assessment, thinking about who is in front of your target client that you want to get in front of, and we make sure we have um, five M's. We make sure do they do they have the market buy-in. Do they are they mission aligned? do they have the money? <laughs> that, that's usually something that we need to think about in the beginning and working with established organizations in the beginning who do have a large um, population base. Do they have the management that really reflects justice? And are they missing the service that you want to offer? Is that missing? And then once we move from identification and finding out the right time, we want to introduce ourselves. We a lot of times help our clients with this process because Kind of to do this quickly and easily, it requires online and offline strategies where we're connecting with leaders on either LinkedIn or we're using um, we're creating little messaging like assets, like elevator pitches, um, to really just or intro emails to really just accelerate the process of getting connected and and being very clear about what you're doing. Now we don't say this is you know these are all the or- things that we want to bring into your organization, but this doing that innovation part allows for us to see what it could look like so that we are more confident about connecting and then the interaction phase where we're connecting we're collecting information through halls and then we're co-collaborating right co-creating i like to say and working with that organization once we have connected with them to hear their what they are experiencing what they think about, you know, some of the, the ideas that we have and and coming up with a solution. And then the last thing is integration, which is the fun part where it's kind of, okay, we think we're a match. It's almost like a speed dating. <laughs> we think we're a match. Let's um, now talk about what a partnership needs. And that does include some legal things, uh, NDAs and BAAs and lots of other acronyms of legal structures, shared space agreements, maybe and the good part about this is that depending on your size of the health system or their size as an organization, it really allows for both of you to kind of share in the process of, okay, who's going to do what, who is going to hire, who is going to have the space, where are we going to do it? And so it really is this collaborative process Um, and it can be really quick or it can be really slow and Either or, I think it's really about both sides being very committed to that, this new model of care that you are are building.
1: Omelara, you have truly a, an innovative model of care. And one of the things that I've learned about uh, with your practice, Strong Children Wellness Medical Group, is that you flip the model for primary care by truly knowing the needs of your patients beyond the clinic. And you've brought primary care into an organization that also provides mental health and social services under the same roof. And in developing your model, you knew that you could only realize your vision for health justice if you maximized family use of pre-visit screenings. And by sending family screening questions about social and behavioral needs prior to the visit, the primary care uh, team, including a nurse educator, gets as much of a view of the family as possible before meeting with them. And this enables the team to get a better sense of the family's needs and maximizes visit time for explaining services. And if the family consents to services for behavioral health or social needs, a shared health coordinator between your practice and your CBO partner makes that warm handoff and helps the family navigate enrollment into services for both the parent and the child. So I wanted to ask you if you could – discuss your process for conducting health risk assessments to better understand the unique social challenges facing your patient population. And how do the roles of nurse educator and health coordinator ensure a seamless transition path for patients to receive the services that they so desperately need?
2: Yeah, so I've been um, in this space of social needs screening and health related social needs since 2016, um that was really prompted by my practice where I used to work seeing kind of the effects of the Affordable Care Act and all of these influx of, of patients coming in and realizing they had a lot going on and not feeling like we had the resources to address it. And so ultimately, the model that we decided to do in terms of social need screening and doing risk assessments were really about thinking about what we were seeing first and foremost. And so I've seen, of course, multiple risk assessments where you're doing everything you're assessing for food, housing, legal, unemployment, childcare. And then I've seen some where it's kind of like what everyone far and away in our practice. Always asks about our food, or we've noticed like everyone has unemployment issues, and so I think it's really up to the the institution, the health system, to say to themselves, or the healthcare practice, to say to themselves, do we how how expansive do we need to make this, or even is there is there a phased approach? So thinking to ourselves about who do we and we talk about this with screening and screening in any case right we don't screen unless we have something to do after the person is identified with the issue and so sometimes developing the right partners is an extremely important part of then being able to start the screening process so if we don't have partners that can help with legal or we don't have partners then it may be an ethical you know Um, issue for us to be screening and identifying people who ultimately are probably like, oh, if I I say this, maybe I'll have access to it. You know, um, it's probably not ideal. And so I think being able to look in your community and say, okay, what are their resources to that we can connect families to? And then starting with the screening around that is going to be important rather than Screening for everything and realizing you can only support them around food insecurity. I think in terms of thinking about how we operate in general uh, to support, you know, nurse educators, navigators. One of the things, just so you, so I clarify, navigators have been the lifeblood of what we do. We have not employed additional like nurse educators or new staff outside of the traditional, but what we've done is we've trained the staff that exists to now see SDHs the same way that they see vitals. So the same way we want everyone, the front desk, everyone to recognize that knowing your blood pressure is as important as knowing whether or not they're positive for the food insecurity screen. Um, and so in doing that, our navigators really become such an important, I like to say, linchpin, both internally, because we we have navigators that honestly just work within our organization uh, to just support subspecialty referrals, transport, and the things that are needed just in general. And then we also, with the organization who we partner with, have uh, care coordinators that are the glue. So once we identify an unmet mental health need, we can bring it to them, and then they are able to, in the organization, identify, okay, this is the service that we have that will be the most helpful for for that client and that need, and then connecting that client to that. So I think of it as both the organization you're working with being able to have and a person who can serve as that linchpin. And then also internally within the practice, being able to think about what are the things that are even keeping them, the outside of the unmet other external needs, what is actually causing delays in in care? What is actually causing... Uh, barriers to them completing just their physical health issues. And that's where our navigators come in to really help support that as well. Also, I think it's important to be very clear that it's going to be hard to partner with an organization that provides everything, everything known to man. And so that we use our navigators to help with those additional referrals for things outside that may not be available within the, the organization you're partnering with that um, are necessary for the patients and being able to do that search. So I like to say, make sure that you're identifying what you can refer for, what is available, and use that to inform your screening. Make sure that you have a process for referring and make sure you have a process for navigation and follow-up. That Those are key things that I feel the ball gets dropped quite a lot, and then these programs aren't as effective as as they really could be.
0: Oh, Malara, this is such an exciting and enlightening conversation. I'm just thrilled to, to hear what you're saying to people, and uh, I just want to emphasize how important these things are. On this journey toward developing a healthcare social enterprise, I understand that the Medicaid program in New York provided a laboratory for you to pursue social impact innovation. And New York State's Medicaid program has made significant progress in transitioning from volume-based to value-based payment models over the last decade. The state's commitment to VBP reform is part of a larger strategy to enhance care quality, improve population health, and achieve greater cost effectiveness in the Medicaid system. New York State's implemented various VBP models and pilots to promote innovation and test different payment methodologies, including pay-for-performance, bundled payments, and full capitation models. Additionally, they've introduced initiatives focused on specific populations, such as the children's VBP pilot, which targets pediatric populations. So how have you been able to take advantage of the, of the VBP uh, movement in New York State through the development of a health home model? that brings care management and behavioral health into underserved communities. And how has it proven to be a profitable model for your community health network in the long term?
2: Yeah, thanks for that. I think New York has been really exciting as a place that, you know, we we have our flaws, but it's been a great place to be able to see the fervency. Uh, and I think of pediatricians in general as advocates as well, um, because a lot of what we usually see is let's do this for adults. And then we wait in the sidelines are like, can we also get this for children? But um, a few things that I think are really important in in our New York space, there have been a number of organizations and quality incentive programs Um, Like you said, care management, um, the health home program, um, collaborative care, which uh, emanated from the University of Washington. And so all of these kind of programs where they really allow for a target high risk population that does have high cost, I should say not high risk, but high cost and high need, really allowing for there to be payment of all of the enough payment through those monthly capitated payments. For there to be enough money to cover the expansiveness of the workforce that is necessary to actually execute this and provide the right outcome. So in terms of profitability, luckily, we've had really strong high per member per month amounts that take into consideration when we do the math and are kind of thinking about, okay, who do we need to take care of? Let's say 100 kids who have this high risk and high need Uh, Issue. And when we do the math, it it works out. It's like, okay, yes, this is the amount we would need per child to be able to do this. And so, uh, and I think the other piece of that is also that it allows for you to subsidize in some way, you know, fee for service, which we're all pushing and hoping that we can move everything, right? Even our primary care, being able to support navigation at baseline as something that elicits um, capitated payments. So I do think that one of the things that's gonna be really important for the nation is for us to do the modeling in the correct way to say, okay, to take care of a hundred patients who have this issue or a hundred patients who have that issue, who is the staff not that we've traditionally used because that was what we had but who would it in the best of all possible worlds who do we need and then when we do that then looking at what does that mean every month for each child how do we break that down and do it and go back um, back into the math and that is those are the numbers that need to be respected and valued and um and brought to forward by governments i think the other place that I'm seeing a, a really exciting space that I would say New York learned, hopefully, is as we wait for the 1115 Medicaid waiver, what we do know is that there's going to be an emphasis rather than providing money, pockets of money to health systems, doing that by providing pockets of money into organizational um, I'm not gonna call them IPAs, but pretty much organizational entities. Um, they call them RIOS or regional health um, organizations that are going to that are primarily led by uh, social service and human service organizations. And I think that is kind of an inflection point for us in the value-based payment world to say, okay, the people who need to be at the table in healthcare may not be people who are providing clinical care. And um, that's exciting to see. I think that's kind of my mission <laughs> in a way of of being able to bring light to that um, so that we can really reach those that are the most affected. So v- VPP is, I think, has been helpful. I think the PMPMs in other states have to go up. I think we also have to do a better job of, Um, making sure that we don't just sit in isolation as healthcare entities, but that we're working with policymakers. Um, I found, you know, my chapters in AAP, which American Academy of Pediatrics to be extremely vocal and on the front lines with policymakers about why does the budget not include this? Why haven't we tapped into this? So I do think that there is going to be a little bit more effort that we'll have to put out there um, around this, both from um, not only the modeling and piloting certain types of care models like we've done, but also bringing that information into to, in front of policymakers to make sure that there is the opportunity for replication and scale.
1: Well, I wanted to ask you also about your consulting business. I mean, you're outside of creating your own health justice Social enterprise. You're also helping women of color in healthcare overcome their struggle and sacrifice. And in terms of your work with BIPOC women led practices, I can't help but think about how you're helping women thrive, but also improving the health outcomes of the communities to which they serve. And, you know, uh, research has shown us that cultural competence is the bedrock of a great patient-provider relationship in the healthcare uh, setting, and when a care team shares the lived experience of the patients they serve and their own ethnicity and race reflects the patient population, clinical outcomes are better. And the evidence clearly shows us that black patients are treated differently by the healthcare system. I mean, we've all heard about physicians often rate uh, the pain felt by African-American patients as being less or different than those of patients in other groups. And, uh, you know, that's just one of many. And I, I just can't help but think about this concept of culturally competent care and how powerful it is in building trust and improving health literacy and ensuring that providers won't turn their back on patients because they don't uh, share the same skin color. So as we think about funding and growing health enterprises to improve health justice, what role should culturally competent care play? And then how are you manifesting this vision through your consulting work with minority healthcare business owners?
2: Yeah. So this I think the work that I do really played very well into the recent news of that study that found that Black residents in counties with more Black physicians, whether or not they actually see those doctors, had lower mortality from all causes and and showed that those counties had lower disparities in mortality. Um, And I believe that finding of longer life expectancy persisted even in a county with a single Black physician. So I think that was extremely eye-opening to a lot of people. I, as a Black physician and a Black woman physician, and also as a Black provider for not just physicians, but public health and public health professional, I think one of the really important things for us to think about is not just, okay, how can we get more BIPOC founders, but how even with organizations or healthcare practices that are white owned or white led, how can they prioritize this? seeing the data here? And so I think of it as not just competent, but I think of it as culturally responsive. And what, and what we were talking about before was socially responsive, right? And so culturally responsive is saying to ourselves, what Is it that we know potentially are the cultural barriers that prevent patients from being able to share information, whether that be from long, deep-seated biases that they have about the healthcare system or about certain types of doctors? What are the ways that we can do everything in our power, both in learning how we can be less biased, but also how we can make sure to make diversity in those practices as paramount as possible, given this kind of information. In our practice, it has been the lifeblood, and it's actually the lifeblood for most of most BIPOC-led founders to ensure that their practices look like their patients, to ensure that their practices speak the languages, all of the languages of the patients that they serve, um, to ensure that their practices are able to think about what the religions are and what are some of the things that we need to be cognizant of in terms of how, you know, how those practices or beliefs or traditions play into how people seek healthcare. Who We might need to have conversations where we don't just interact with the family, but we might interact with a religious leader as well um, in order to be able to support families in their decision-making. So I think it's just being open. and, And I think this is really hard sometimes because it does require more work than what you traditionally do. So it does require at having to have that in the forefront, it does require having to think about, do we need a workforce to be able to support making these additional connections? I would say that for my consulting business, making sure that we have more BIPOC founders who not, are not burning out and are able to start their own practices and do it on their own terms Is the way that we save primary care and particularly the way that we build health justice, because if we don't have not only is it about representation, but it's about having providers who are diverse and also are thriving. What we're finding is that for many of us, um, we're finding that we are struggling. In a lot of the health systems, because of the lack of mentorship, the lack of representation, feeling like you are alone. There was recently in the news uh, a provider, a Black woman anesthesiology resident who was fighting for unionizing, but also probably dealing with medical racism. And unfortunately, she committed suicide um, a few weeks ago. And so this is very important. This is why I do the work that I do to consult so that people feel like they have an option and they also are able to maybe be the change makers in their organizations to say, you know, I am doing this work like this, but I think we could do this better through this kind of nonprofit partnership. Uh, and it also allows people to, to who are already having their practices Um, saying that, you know, even if they're making a lot of revenue, saying to themselves, I am dying in my practice by trying to do it this way. Are there other ways that I can serve the communities I want, but also make sure that I can stay in business and stay sustainable? And so I think that is part of why I started the consulting. And that is why the BIPOC piece and really targeting those populations is so important to me.
0: Amalara, thank you for this wonderful conversation today. As as we wrap up, I'd love to hear you share a patient story illustrating the impact you've made on the overall health of communities. I'm sure you have hundreds, but if you can think of one story that stands out for our listeners, we'd love to hear that. And and ultimately, how was this care delivery transformation in that story made possible by the social impact funding that you received to deliver on your practice's community-centered mission to improve health equity?
2: Yeah, so one of the stories that we like to share a lot is of um, a patient, a a small boy, um, who is about four or five years old. He um, is, his mom is a, a Honduran immigrant, and ultimately, what we found is that she actually was in a domestic violence situation um pregnant as well as having that having two other children and in a space where as a recent immigrant not recognizing that um you know, what are all of the resources that are available, how how to make ends meet, and also how to potentially move out of that shelter. What we find is also that child, given that exposure, has trauma history, right? And ACEs, and multiple ACEs, adverse childhood experiences. And so the nice thing about what we have done is say, okay, we're not going to just say to this child, what are the physical health issues? And that's it. <laughs> and and kind of leave everything else out. But really assessing whenever we see a child, it was about assessing the family and knowing that, you know, a child and a family and their family structure are so intimately connected in terms of what's going to happen with that child, and especially in their health and well-being. And so that meant doing the screening to be able to identify what are the issues with the child, which included Trauma, which included definitely a need for early childhood mental health, which our which our um, our partner actually had services for. and then also being able to identify what are the housing supports and needs and also public benefit support, which our partner also had support with. So what for all of the children who were American citizens, how could we get more financial support? So that that mom could use her income to be a bit more disposable um, and not having to use it for things like food and housing and other things, but being able to now utilize that for education. I think the other piece is not just focusing on one of the things that we did was not just focusing on what are the needs per se, social needs, but also economic mobility resources. So how could this family, what are the resources that could help this family move out of poverty? So education resources, financial planning resources, and and one of the organizations that we worked with is called LIFT, which focuses on financial coaching um, and adult literacy With literacy partners. So, one of the really important things that I think was just doing that screening to be able to say, okay, what do we have? And saying to ourselves, what are the immediate, you know, primary basic needs? What are the economic mobility opportunities? And then what are the mental health needs? And really being able to provide an ecosystem around that family, but not expecting the mom to do it all by herself. And so having a navigator who would use our HIPAA compliant text messaging to be able to communicate, this is what we connected with, this is when your appointment is, and to support them so they feel like, okay, this is happening, but it's not just more pressure on me to make it happen, but I have a resource. Um, and so that's really a model of kind of how our services being expansive and partnered are able to support families quickly to ensure that they're getting their their needs met. And, you know, that child is in care now, is doing much better now. And that I think is is exciting to us, you know, over time to really see those changes in, the, in family structures.
1: Hello, Malara, you're truly doing great work in this world. You're helping mission-driven healthcare organizations secure funding and build scale and strength in their care delivery models so they can better serve under-resourced communities of color. I mean, you've done such incredible work as a health equity entrepreneur and health justice advocate. For our listeners out there that are interested in learning more about your story and, and plugging into the work that you're doing, like how can they uh, connect with you and, and learn more about all the great things that you're doing to, to help organizations uh, along this path to health justice?
2: Yeah, they definitely should hop on over. To melaninandmedicine.co, and um, which is our website. We uh have there a masterclass for those that are really interested in the uh, it's called the four ways to expand your health practice beyond clinical care for more revenue reach and impact. So that's easy. <laughs> that's the one thing. But then also um, if they go to our quick links, which it, we have, it's called bit bit.lybit.ly B-I-T forward slash melanin and medicine. That actually has the masterclass, it also has our podcast and um, our website, as well as all of our social links. I'm the most active on LinkedIn um, and Instagram and they they can follow and and I like to share things weekly as well. But I think really just heading to the website is probably the best bang for your buck in order to just learn a little bit more about what we do. Um, And funding your healthcare vision even though our season is over now, it'll be back in September for a new season, but I just try to share as much as possible on a weekly basis. So looking in the archives there might be also helpful for your listeners.
1: Outstanding. Well, we appreciate you sharing those resources. I know our listeners are, are, are going to dive in deep. You know, this is a, uh, a real problem, a challenge that we have to solve and improving equity and creating a uh, Justice and social impact within our uh, healthcare system. Omalara, I just wanted to again thank you for your time. It's truly been a pleasure being with you on this week's uh, race to value.
0: Thank you, Omalara. Very cool.
2: Thank you so much. I really enjoyed the conversation.